Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun on three occasions. I don't well to survive anyway. Madame Daly will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure, not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the neck to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? Hello and welcome to another episode of I Foresee Trouble with Daily Wallace and the rotating cast of characters. Um, Mighty Quinn is back. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny now, but the minute as... I actually, before you even said the Mighty Quinn, right? I just remembered the song. I went to the gate talk in Galway when I was 12 years of age, spent three months there, right? Three of the worst months you of my life, right? You didn't even have a toilet and there, which I find there, a there, wasn't, there was no <laughs> toilet in the house, no. But the, the song, uh, The Mighty Quinn, uh, was on the radio at the time. That was 1968. Come on, my love, come on, my You ain't never seen nothing like the Mighty Quinn. <laughs> Isn't that old, that song? Because I remember that. That was that year. And, and the Meat football team had actually yeah, won the oh, All-Ireland yeah, before yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was reinvigorated anyway, yeah. in latter years. Anyway. So you're from the Mighty Quinns, are you? Yeah, I'm Keir Quinn of the Mighty Quinns. Um, this week... Um, little transition so this week you were busy in committees the plan for this episode is we're going to have a talk through some of the things that came up I know there was a few things to do with the European Investment Bank and Defence there was also um, some climate stuff some transportation committee stuff um, and then but first of all I thought we'd talk about fishing and the impact of Brexit on Irish fishing I know you were dealing with that this week Mick yeah um I've actually just spent an hour uh, with the fishermen uh, from um, the northwest of Ireland. And, uh, I mean, we, we, had a, we had a very good meeting as well uh, back in Cork there uh, about five or six weeks ago. And uh, I had a meeting uh, with the boys down in, in Wexford and Waterford as well uh, in after Christmas. But, I mean, the common trend the whole time is that, I mean, fishing is so badly treated uh, at home. Uh, people, people are probably familiar with the fact that uh, when we joined the European Union, we uh, decided um, to give away our fishing rights in return for subsidies for uh, dairy and beef. And uh, things haven't really improved much ever since for the fishermen. And uh, it's, it's really, it's tragic because... Um, I think fishing communities uh, are a big part of Ireland. We're a, we're a small island, which means a whole lot of people live near the coast. We have, a, we have some amazing, beautiful uh, fishing villages. And, it, it, you know, the, the fishing village won't be alive uh, in the same way if the fishing communities die. The, the, big, the big thing with fishing at the moment is that the common fishers policy is up for review in December 2022. It comes up for review every 10 years. The last two times it came up in 2012 and 2002, it, it ended up that there was really no review. And the fishermen 
are adamant this time there has to be a review. And in fairness to the Commissioner, Savicevic, uh, he's saying that there will be a review and that they want to do things fair. Now, the big problem, obviously, the most obvious thing to anyone listening is uh, the problem around quotas, right? I mean, like, for example, there's some fish, like monkfish and different white fish, where we're only allowed to catch less than 5% of the fish in our own waters. I mean, it is absolute madness, right? And in order to get those quotas increased, it involves taking quotas of others. And what happened was that the French and the Spaniards and the Portuguese and the Belgians have dominated the fish market, they dominate that area of the EU, and the Irish have never got a good deal and we've never had a government that fought well for the fishermen. And that's a big problem. So we're trying to highlight uh, now, this year in, in particular, now it won't finish in December 2022 either. This could go on to 2024. But we need to be come out fighting. Mm. And we've got to look for fairness for the fishermen. And uh, a big problem now as well. Um, like, for example, th- there, was, um, there was a report recently... Uh, on the future of fisheries in the Channel, North, uh, North Sea, Irish Sea and Atlantic Ocean uh, because of the UK withdrawal from the EU, right? And uh, when the report came out, it completely admitted the fact that Ireland, uh, which lost 15% of its quota under the agreement, was proportionally, substantially more impacted by the trade and cooperation agreement that they came up with than any other member state. The fishermen at home would insist that no more than 50% of the gross tonnage and kilowatt power of the total boats fishing between Ireland's 12-mile limit and 200-mile limit should come from outside of Ireland. And that's the, that's what they're fighting for, right? I mean, the common fisheries policy, including its utterly outdated relative stability principle, has which is, which is supposed to bring in the fairness, has slowly strangled Irish fishing and coastal communities for almost 40 years now. And we've a lot of work on our hands. And when, when I organised a meeting down in Cork, I asked Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael to come to the meeting as well, and fair play they did. Billy Kelleher came and Deirdre Clune came, right? And it was great that we had cross-party support for uh, getting a better deal for the fishermen. But Charlie McConnell now is the minister and uh, he's going to be going to the um, council meetings and Charlie has to fight tooth and nail for a better deal for the fishermen in every aspect. And, uh, and one of the areas that he needs to fight for is the fact that there's, see, science dictates what quota can be caught in what waters all over the world, right? Because fishing uh, stocks were being depleted the place because of overfishing. But science now decides this is the amount you can catch. But in actual fact, the Belgians and the French and the Spaniards have a licence to catch X amount of fish in Irish water and they're not even fulfilling their quota. And that's fish that the Irish should be allowed to catch. Now, you're not going to get a situation where the French or the Spaniards or the Belgians are going to give up their quotas because that's not what people do, right? But what they can do is if if they're genuinely not catching their full quota, they need to lease that to the Irish 
over a certain period, even if it's over three or four or five year terms, right? Uh, so that because this is fish that science says can be caught and there's nothing wrong with it, right? Uh, and the you know the science is determining the future of fishing, right? So this is fish that should be caught and it should be caught by the Irish if the others are not catching it. That's that's, that's just one element uh, that needs to be fought for. But there's, look, there's, there's fairness required right across the board. And I, 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 just from talking to the different groups, right, I think that they're probably better organised than ever before, and there's some really good people involved from all the different organisations, right? Uh, sadly, the biggest culprit is the department. The department is a disaster in Dublin, an absolute disaster. It's not fighting their cause. And changing a department, any department uh, in the Irish government, is a big challenge. But God help us, they've got to be, uh, come with a different approach. Well, I think it's an open secret that the Department of the Marine, or whatever they're called now, has historically been incredibly poor. And I suppose it's an example of how the decisions of today, or in this case, yesteryear, have consequences for decades to come. And the fishermen were sold out in return for a better deal for agriculture, even though it didn't work out great for agriculture either. The big farmers won, the small fellas didn't. Such is life. But I mean, the demands of the fishermen from Ireland are modest. I mean, can you imagine if we had said, OK, we want to get 50% of the resources from our land, like, but we're giving up the other 50% and that's deemed to be excessive. They're only looking for 50% of the cut and yet, you know, that's deemed to be um, outside of what's on offer at the moment and we're getting that from the same people who talk about solidarity, about our European colleagues look after us. No, our European colleagues look after themselves. There's no solidarity in terms of access to Irish waters. It's the big boys came in. They did the deal behind the little fellas back and they've been fleecing it ever since. And the idea of Ireland trying to claim 50% would be seen as audacious and unwarranted. But again, it's another example of us bending the knee, a lack of foresight and a lack of ability to use our own natural resources for the benefit of our people, which is really regrettable. Yeah, no, it's not, it, something has to give. Mm. Something mm. has to change. There has to be fairness brought into the equation for yeah. Irish fishing. So yeah. narrow-minded. I mean, our use of the seas is, you see it as we move away from gas now, how the total lack of attention to Ireland's wave energy, which is unique worldwide and against the climate demands, we could be really developing our coastal resources. But obviously the private sector doesn't have sufficient resources to bring it to the next level of development. The Irish government isn't interested. The EU isn't interested either, which is makes a mockery of their of their climate goals as well. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, a perfect example of how capitalism works, how neoliberalism works. If there isn't a quick buck in it, uh, they're not quite so interested. And uh, investing in WAVE now is a long-term project because you won't get your money back for a while. Mm. And they haven't really even uh, perfected the science. They don't even know how to do it properly yet, how to best do it uh, so that it's uh, efficient and sustainable. Uh, but that's because they're not fucking trying hard enough now. Well, there's been some there's really no small-scale you know, yeah. engineering-led programmes which have taken it with the benefit of state money to the tune of maybe hundreds of thousands and some European money, hundreds of thousands. But they need about 10 million to get it to the next stage of testing and they can't get that. And we all know 10 million is an absolute pittance in here, the way it gets slashed around, but nobody uh, in Ireland is fighting for that, which is really regrettable. So, um, yeah, yes. lack of foresight yet again. Um 
which actually brings us on to one of the next topics I know you wanted to touch on this week. There was some discussions in Envy this morning um, on environment. It was when Commissioner Timmermans came in, was it? Yeah, well, first, before Timmermans came in, the Commission uh, were in as well uh, talking about corporate sustainability due diligence, right? Oh, yeah. Now, what this means is it's about um, imposing uh, um, restrictions on companies to stop them from uh, violations of human rights and violating the environment, mm. right? And it, it's making them uh, answerable uh, to their, their own member states and to the EU uh, for their behaviour. Mm -hmm. Now, they're targeting big companies, right? Like, for example, uh, people that employ more than 500 people and have a turnover of more than 150 million, right? Yeah. Now, the bar is a bit lower for companies in what's called the so-called high-impact sectors like clothes, animals, forestry, food and beverages and the extraction of fossil fuels and metals, right? Uh, and for them, it's uh, the bar is set at 250 employees and 40 million in net turnover. But the big problem is, right, just, just let's just go back to the uh, initial one, right? 500 people and a turnover of 150 million. The problem is, and w I got speaking time on this, and... Uh, the, the, the truth is that turnover or staff size alone can't properly measure a company's capacity to do human rights violations or to damage the environment, right? And uh, I give an example of a, of a company in Dublin, right, called CMC, Coal Marketing Company, right? And they have an annual turnover of over half a billion, but they've less than 30 people working for them. So they're not getting so they hot with the bar. net. So they don't have to adhere mm. by the rules that, that are being introduced, right? Where uh, due diligence, uh, it will be done in all these companies to see that they're behaving properly, right? So in other words, putting in the turnover element and the employment numbers isn't, is going to let loads of people through the net. And it's turned out that 99% of businesses in Europe are not going to be caught by this. 99%. Wow. Now, a lot of big companies will be, which is good, but a whole lot of people will not uh, be caught. And, like, for example, uh, people that outsource their labour, right? And a whole lot of companies outsource their labour now. They might only have 40 or 50 people on the books themselves, and they could be outsourcing to a couple of thousand. Uh, but the, it'll only go by who, how many they actually employ directly. I mean, if you look at the, the building industry in Ireland today, right, most people are, are employed indirectly. If, 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 uh, if a, most builders now, if they want someone uh, to put in a footpath, uh, they ring up some agency. If, if they need uh, five labours on Monday and Tuesday and they don't want anyone on Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, they ring a... a an employment agency and say here send us out five men Monday we're, we're done with them Tuesday evening not great working conditions for those caught in that in that trap but that's that's where we're going and you'll find that the big companies are ahead too and that particular coal company they're actually they're, they've been they've been notorious right because they've actually been uh, marketing coal for the famous uh, carry-on uh, uh, mine in Colombia where there's been terrible human rights abuses. So, and these buys in Dublin are marketing call for these fellas, right? And they will still not be caught for their behaviour and they'll get through the net. Mm -hmm. So there's huge problems with it. Now, uh, the commission 
are probably they actually, they actually replied and there was they were, they were, the reply was reasonable uh, but You'd like to think that this is just the beginning and that they're going to make progress. Now, uh, Pascal Canafan, the, the chair of the Envy Committee, came up with a very good proposal as well, and which I, had, which I hadn't really thought of. And he said that uh, bonuses, company bonuses, need to be linked to corporate responsibility in this area. So, in other words, uh, companies, for example that have a very good record around human rights and protection of the environment in their purchasing power and in their activities, uh, that bonuses in the company be linked to the good behaviour, which really makes sense. So it was, a, it was a very good suggestion from Pascal. It was a good suggestion, but I suppose it comes back to the thing, you know, of will it be implemented? And what we have here is an example of how the... European Union has, puts forward what is a very important and necessary proposal to regulate the excesses of capitalism or corporate behaviour to try and ensure best practice. So they come up with rules and pieces of legislation. But actually what happens is then it gets into the hands of the lobbyists. And we had a really interesting session with a group of cross-section of MEPs from across the groups organised by one of our colleagues in the Five Star on this concept of the revolving door which is basically about people, I suppose, in public life, be it politicians or senior civil servants or state actors in regulatory bodies who leave the public sector and then go and work in the private sector and use the knowledge that they got from their public position, not to benefit the public good, but for the private gain of that corporation. And during it was a really interesting panel discussion that went over the course of yesterday. And there were a whole number of academics who've done studies in the area and NGOs involved in this coming up with recommendations in terms of how the EU could deal with it for itself and its own institutions, but what they should be putting forward generally. And one of the things out of it was there are 12,000 lobbying organisations centred in Brussels. So these are people, they wouldn't be all the bad guys now. Some of these would be people, say, environmental bodies lobbying for best environment practice, some labour organisations or refugee organisations, and then they have a few. And then on the other side of these big juggernaut ones, well-financed from big pharma, big agri, the arms industry and all the rest of it, trying to precisely chip away at the type of legislation that Mick was outlining. And that's why you have it been watered down all the time. You can see it in the MEPs when you go in lobbying. Now, these are registered lobbying organisations. And in the last election, 30% of the MEPs who weren't re-elected or didn't stand for election went on to work for these companies on the transparency register, which means, and we've seen it, we've seen Irish uh, former ministers who operate out here or junior ministers who've set up consultancy firms and who market themselves on the basis of, come to us, we'll show you how to cut down the bureaucracy and how the rules work, basically. And you see it in America that the big law firms advertise it when they get a politician to work for them. They say, we have this person working with us, come work with us, they'll show you how the system works and they'll get you results. And the fact is, they do, because they're dealing with their friends and their colleagues and they know how it works. And how you regulate that and how you deal with that is actually quite difficult. And one of the Australian guys, I thought he made a really, you know, he said... Career civil servants or people high up in, in those state organisations or that, we have to value their role and their role has to be seen as a destination, not a stepping stone. And really, 
for me, that was one of the strongest points. The only way to close a resolving door is to shut the flipping door like, and not allow it. Then at the same time, you have people saying, well, you're in public life and you're going to go back into society at a certain stage. You have to earn a living. You can't curtail, you know, your freedoms and that. Well, sometimes you actually have to, um, I think, uh, in the interests of the common good. And they talk about things like cooling off periods and like the staff working here of cooling off periods. They say maybe a year and a half, two years before you can get a job in an associated field. But I suppose it links to the point makes making people find ways around that. So you go and you work for a law firm and you pretend you're working for the like your advisor and then you go and work for the consultancy mm. firm. But all the time you're really doing it anyway. So I suppose it comes back to can you really regulate capitalism and can you really manage when the financial incentive is so great to go for politicians to jump into that uh, and use their knowledge, if you like, and have that conflict of interest that just declaring it isn't enough, like saying, oh, have a register where they say, yeah. oh, there's a conflict of interest. No one looks at that or even cares about it. And the commissioner yeah. is supposed to approve it and should they don't yeah, but, even bother. Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, the most frightening thing for me, I mean, you said, you didn't say 12,000 individual lobbyists in Brussels. You said 12,000 organisations. Mm. I'm, uh, my, the mind boggles at what the number might be like. My God, is it any wonder that uh, Brussels is such a, a busy, thriving city? I mean, there's some people working here related to the institutions. Do you know, there's 30,000 working in the Commission alone. I haven't a figure for the Parliament. 60,000 the the 60, working in, in the institutions the in Brussels. Yeah. yeah, but then and then we have 12,000 lobby organisations. Hmm. Uh, uh, could we say they have an average of four, three? Hmm. What do you think? Oh, yeah. No, well, no, no. I mean, and they, there's I, a, a path beaten I mean, from the Commission, we're, we're, people we're head, regulating we're that up, in. We're heading yeah. up to nearly the 60,000 mark that are working <laughs> in institutions. Yeah, like, yeah. my God. Yeah. And listen, all over the world, what a lobbyist does is very rarely in the public good. Right? The ones you're talking about lobbying for, uh, for the, on behalf of the environment, they're the minority in a big way. Because mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. most people that are lobbying are looking to, are making money for somebody. Yeah, well, oh, yeah, yeah you need the money to fund the yeah. lobbyists. Absolutely. So, yeah, the environmental yeah. organisations yeah. aren't the ones And I mean, the, the gas thing here is, is that now they get apoplectic in here on the Foreign Interference Committee about a few uh, former politicians who went to work for some Russian companies or from Chinese companies that drives them absolutely around the bend and fair point it's the same thing that's corporate capture as well but why is it only wrong when they go to work for Russian and Chinese they've no problem with the going to work for Goldman Sachs or all of these institutions which actually infest economic policy in the EU way more than anything that's happening in Russia or China well when they finish when the commission uh, introduced the subject first um, and I, when I was asking questions right one of the questions I asked I said right I said you talked a lot about the need to make the directors of the companies responsible and, and that there would be audits of the, the company behaviour to make sure that they were complying with the rules. So I said, right, OK, how do you hold the directors responsible then? You know, what kind of uh, disciplines are in place or, you know, can people be punished mm -hmm. if, they're, if they're behaving badly or are they only going to get a slap on the wrist or whatever? What was the answer? Um, it was interesting, right, because obviously it then goes back to the member state and they told me that it actually reverts back 
it depends on company law because I told them that I was pretty familiar with company law in Ireland from having companies myself in my time and also myself and Claire we were very busy uh, with le- with amendments we had over 100 amendments in on the company law bill that went through the, the, the House of the Rockers in 2013 and 2014 Richard Bruton was actually the minister on it and he was, he was pretty good on it he was in fairness to him but uh, that it actually reverts back to member state law. So it's actually then up to the member state to discipline any directors that behave in, a, in an irresponsible fashion uh, around this legislation. It, as Claire mm. said, it's hard to implement. But anyway. Yeah. The, sorry, Go you on. asked me about, about Timmermans, right? Uh, Franz Timmermans, the commissioner for the environment, was in after that. And... Um, I managed to get speaking time with him as well. And um, now, I suppose what, what I was challenging him on was uh, the Global Methane Pledge, right? Because in September last year, in relation to the Global Methane Pledge, uh, Franz Timmermans said that he would propose a legislative framework to reduce methane emissions. And uh, he actually said uh, that he would do so across the whole energy supply chain in the EU and in partner countries which export fossil fuels to the EU. And, he, and, I, and I was throwing this back at him and I said, in November, I said last year, you said that for the, that the EU, for the EU, most emissions that are associated with our consumption occur outside our borders. Right. So the EU relies on imports for 70 percent of its uh, hard coal consumption, 97 percent of its oil consumption and 90 percent of its fossil gas consumption. So a methane regulation introduced in Europe that doesn't apply leak detection and repair and venting and flaring rules to imports will be useless, mm-hmm. absolutely useless, right? So I asked them, so why, I said, does the Commission proposal not apply these rules to imports? I said, we already have rules for imports of food uh, and agricultural products, chemicals, cars, timber, and a whole lot of other stuff. So I said, why can't we have a similar system for fossil fuel imports? And he, he didn't really answer it well. He, had, he, was, uh, he was ducking and diving a bit on it and more or less saying that he's kind of got as much as he can for the moment, which is really a bit disappointing, you know. Um, but uh, that's as far as we go on. But spe- speaking of Timmermans, he was obviously being challenged a lot on the energy crisis in Europe. And obviously people will be familiar with the fact that the Russians are threatening to, tr- to cut off the gas to Poland and Bulgaria at the moment. Uh, and he he admitted for the first time that I've heard, as I, I always go to hear him when he's speaking, and today was the first day where I heard he said, Listen, we have to, we have to now look seriously at LNG again, liquid natural gas, which all it's it's comes from fracking, which is absolutely filthy. Most of it's coming from America. There's also frack gas in Russia. It's obviously they're not talking about that stuff, but there's obviously stuff in in, in Qatar have access to frack gas as well. But so here we are now, uh, on because of our own sanctions, we're actually going to force ourselves to engage more with LNG that we were trying to move away from. And this is pushback on environmental progress. And he was, not only that, he was also saying that, oh, and, now, and the fracking people are saying to us, oh, you want our frack gas now because you have a problem with the Russians? Uh, but how long is he going to, going to give us a contract for 20 years or mm-hmm. what? And he, he admitted that they're, 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 they're talking 
around the table with them and they're talking about buying LNG more and that will involve us building infrastructure that will lock us in to filthy fossil fuels for many years to come. And he says, but we're in terms of how long we're going to buy it off him, what they're saying to him is, we're going to, we'd, we'd like to do a deal with you for LNG for X amount of years and then we'll buy hydrogen from you. Green hydrogen, right? Now, listen, this is dangerous territory all around right and it's scary times and mm -hmm. uh, there's no doubt about it but uh, the environment uh, the progress we were making and as Claire said, only said yesterday uh, the progress hasn't been good enough and it hasn't been good enough but at least there has been some progress made but uh, there's unfortunately we're going to park some of the good measures that we were going to bring in. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the environmental damage is one thing, but the scary territory, even more scary if it can be managed, imagined that we're going into in terms of the war is really frightening as well, because, I mean, all of this posturing over the gas situation definitely constitutes a ratcheting up of the tensions. I mean, the MEPs here are, again, um, spitting fire over Russia's announcement that they want to be paid in rubles. Now, I mean, you can look at it another way and say, well, up to now, the Russians have continued to honour the contracts and allow the gas to continue. Um, should it go, the impact on the economy of Europe is going to be catastrophic very quickly. We've already huge, and that's what they're arguing for. We're going to Strasbourg next week and the demands and the calls from Eastern Europe will be to the other countries who are still dealing in gas, cut off the gas supply, pauperise your economy. Uh, this is what we need to do to show solidarity with Ukraine. And it is going to be intense because we were at a transport meeting this morning and it was exactly the same thing. Every single committee of the parliament is being turned over as a vehicle for continuing the war. And the people suffering out of that, first and foremost, are going to be the people of Ukraine. How are sanctioning say the German economy or the Austria are turning the lights out they're going to help a single person in Ukraine. It absolutely isn't. And what we saw in Tran was obviously the war has had and our session was supposed to be a special session on the impact of the war on the transport sector in the EU. And it was in camera, in private, big secret. Pity it couldn't be on public because your man was absolutely desperate. All he did was talk about how they wanted to turn the transport sector into helping get people out of Ukraine if they wanted to come out, fine, helping Ukraine get its freight and its, its economy and all of that, imports, exports and deliveries and all of that, but then mainly about sanctioning uh, Russia and the impact that that had had. So we already see in aviation, for example, now the airlines have to fly around uh, they have to avoid Russian and Belarusian airspace because of the sanctions and so on, which can mean often hours of an extra journey, three, four hours, stopovers that weren't envisaged. The environmental damage coming out of that, the cost of the airlines and fuel, fuel which is much bigger price now than it was, and there wasn't a mention of that at all. The whole economy and the whole discussion was about turning the transport sector to basically furthering the war effort or to deal with a scenario where the war would continue and where Russia would be factored out of the European economy. Now, that is utter lunacy from an environmental point of view. It's on the map, Russia. It's a huge part of the European continent. To think that we can chop it off and not deal with it going into the future is 
absolute lunacy, but that's the only place in which they were uh, going. And I mean, that and military mobility and the fella from the commission. And of course, unfortunately, Putin's war has given them the opportunity that they wanted to be. You know, one of the many tragedies of this appalling war is that because we had a military mobility budget initially put forward by the commission of six billion euros, that wasn't agreed. They chopped it down to 1.5 billion. The Eastern Europeans were going mad but I tell you now, they're kind of, now, we told you, now we need more. And now some of the people who stood up against were saying, yes, we do need more. Oh, my God, we absolutely do. This just shows we have to respond together. But, I mean, how is building a bridge in, um, you know, Hungary to take a big giant tank going to protect anybody in Europe? Mm. It isn't like, you know, the best protection to the people in Europe is dealing with the environmental consequences and ending the war as soon as possible. And there wasn't a single person who said... Do you know what would be a good idea now is to stop and the consequences the, uh, of dealing with the consequences of the war would be to stop it. Mm. But this, the more they go on with these actions and the more that they try and isolate Russia, Putin has come out like he did before and said, keep pushing, lads, and the action will be lightning. And no doubt our little groupies from the media who want selectively pick comments that we'll make will say that this is us threatening the people of Ukraine or the threatening the people of Europe or standing by Putin. We are appalled by the war. We're anti-war activists. All of our actions have been directed towards stopping the war. And what really frightens me, I had a knot in my stomach sitting in the meeting, is that the whole meeting and everybody in it was just working to see how we could keep it going. Yeah, it's really scary. It seems to be like there's this, <laughs> it's now accepted and... Uh, Acknowledge that this is a it's not going to end anytime soon. And there's all these kind of future preparations you, you, being you, made. You, you can't have I mean, given that the EU in 60 days have made zero effort to get come in, get negotiations and diplomacy working. I keep saying this, but the European peace project is in trouble. It was mm -hmm. formed as a European peace project so that we wouldn't have war. There has been nothing on the war for the last 60 days. The war is 100% Putin's fault. He invaded illegally and it's, uh, it's, it's a, an absolutely terrible thing to do and lives are being lost. Why isn't Europe trying to stop that mm -hmm. terrible war? Mm -hmm. Why is there no talk of negotiations starting? We've had nothing only talk of, of, of all the talk has been about escalating the war, pouring more and more arms, bigger arms, bigger tanks, bigger weapons. And the more arms and bigger machinery that they put in there, the more Ukrainians will die. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, the sanctions that they're putting on Russia, and as I've said before, a commissioner admitted to me in an in-camera session that they weren't designed to stop the war, they were never going to stop the war, they're designed to cripple the Russian economy. Well... Lord and behold, they're also going to cripple the living conditions of an awful lot of European citizens. They're also going to cripple the living conditions of a whole lot of Russian people. Now, they mightn't be too worried about them, but the Russian people didn't actually start the war. And the sanctions are not hitting the people who did start it. Because Putin and his gang, uh, sure, great if you can fucking cripple them, but they're not doing it with their sanctions. They're having very little impact on them, and they're not stopping the war. So we're actually talking now... Myself and Claire have argued a lot about sanctions, and most sanctions are actually illegal unless authorised by the UN. 
And we, we argued that the sanctions in Iraq, in Syria, in Afghanistan, in Iran, in Venezuela were collective punishment against the people and didn't bring about regime change in any of those places, right? But the, all the authorities, whether it was the Americans or the Europeans or whoever was imposing the sanctions, they all, admit, they all claimed that, were, oh, this is not collective punishment, these are targeted sanctions. Rubbish. But this time, this time, I've heard MEPs actually calling for collective punishment against the Russian people in in-camera sessions. They're saying, this is not Putin's war. This is Russia's war. 80% of the Russians uh, support the war. So we need to punish all of them. That's collective punishment. It is 100% illegal under international law. And it's absolutely madness. And inflation in Europe is going to hit a minimum of 8% this year. Living conditions for the for the, for the less well off Europeans in particular is going to be dramatically impacted in a negative fashion. We are introducing sanctions that are designed to cripple the Russian economy, that are not stopping the war, but will do untold damage to our own people in Europe, as as well as the the poor uh, in Russia. This is absolute nonsense. Why isn't Zelensky instead of? ringing up the Americans saying we want more arms we want more arms we want more arms and the Americans have given them over 13 billion at the moment four and a half billion of that was directly in uh, military hardware why isn't he ringing Biden and saying please start negotiating a peace because that can be done and it would be an opportunity for Biden to resurrect his political career which is in tatters at the moment and it would be amazing if he could actually stop the war soon but at the moment all we've seen from the US and NATO uh, is they actually like the war the way it is they're, they're, they're prepared to escalate it and unfortunately we have von der Leyen singing from their hymn sheet she's sounding more and more like a vassal uh, absolute puppet of US imperialism at morning, noon and night it makes they, me they sick they actually accept that they're going to uh, destroy parts of the European economy one of the MEPs said today we, we accept that these sanctions are going to mean uh, thousands of job losses in my company in my country maybe tens of thousands what support are you going to give to that what sort of lunacy goes on with this that they're not sending the same energy saying let's stop the war uh, end it but they're actually actively participating now a number of the member states which means that if that is found out and we've seen soldiers going in or advisors going in from the UK and the US directly and a more direct involvement from NATO. We've seen the accounts of fire going from uh, Ukraine into Russia itself. So uh, an escalation of the conflict with a belief of member states potentially being directly involved. If that comes out or if the Russians decide to act on that and take retaliatory action for a member state's involvement, then that brings the whole of the EU into a war where Russia has. And people say, well, yes, we can't have peace because that would be rewarding uh, Russia. They have to surrender. If you get Russia into the corner like that, what we will be surrendering is humanity in the, con mm -hmm. in the continent of Europe. You cannot uh, take them on. And that's not about rewarding them. It's about let's sit down, have a negotiated peace. And a negotiated peace isn't saying Ukraine has to give up anything. It means that they make an agreement with each other to live side by side and to end the conflict, you know, which is not a surrender for Ukraine. The Ukrainian people have already proven to the world and to Russia that their country can't be over taken and that the international community stands behind them. So is it so bad that they'd agreed to be neutral and sit down and, and have a, 
a resolution. But the EU, unfortunately, is not facilitating that. Yeah, no, there's so much more we could go into about sanctions, diplomacy, how how the war could end, why that isn't happening at the moment. But I, that's all the time we have for this week. Um, we'll wrap up. And Very good. Yeah, the two of you will be in Strasbourg next week. Yeah, yeah. Oh God, into the breach again. Yep. Yep. Here we go. Until We're, then. Okay, bye-bye. all the best, everyone. Bye bye.